Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. My name is Carl Reilert and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. In previous episodes we've talked about the origins of World War I and the first year of the conflict, 1914, across both Eastern and Western fronts. Last week we talked about the unprecedented scale of the conflict, how it affected entire nations in what became known as Total War. We also covered the entry of war by Italy and the Ottoman Empire, and the campaign at Gallipoli. Today I continue by relating the main events of 1915. For the Germans... 1915 was a year that should not have been. Their whole strategy had been based on a quick war, but they now found themselves embroiled in a two-front war, on the Eastern Front against Russia and on the Western Front against France, fully mobilised and Britain slowly amassing her strength and relatively invulnerable behind her navy. A vast area of interlocking defensive networks stretched almost 500 miles from the English Channel down to the Swiss border. The main defence, the trenches, were cut about 12 feet deep in a zigzag fashion so that troops could find protection from fire from their flanks and in order to stop the spread of a blast along the length of a trench if a shell landed on it. Barbed wire was stretched in front of the line and parties were sent out each night to maintain it and to improve its effectiveness. Frontline troops lived in dugouts, rooms used for dormitories and stores dug into the trench wall facing the enemy, and further trenches ran back to safer areas in which hospitals and stores of supplies were located. The network grew over time with increased numbers of lines running parallel to each other to be used in the event of retreat. The space between opposing trenches, known as No Man's Land, varied in width, but was typically anything between 100 and 300 metres. Temporary unmanned dead-end trenches were also dug out into no-man's land to listen to the enemy's activities or for mounting surprise attacks. A typical British battalion, as an example, could be expected to engage in action a handful of times a year, though some sectors of the front line saw little activity during the whole war, especially in the south, while others saw almost continuous fighting. Even in quiet sectors, there were dangers, however, from snipers, gas attacks or disease. 
communications were by courier pigeon, by hand or through telephone lines. Newly developed wireless was also available, but only to higher headquarters, and lacked range and reliability. The so-called spark sets of 1914 were incapable of fine-tuning, so that signals were dispersed across all known long-wave frequencies, and were thus readily susceptible to interception. Valve technology, which made possible transmissions on a narrow band, was invented only in the United States in 1913, and was not widely used in Europe until two years later. The French commander-in-chief, Joseph Joffre, was under intense pressure to remove the invaders from French soil. The question was how. Over the winter of 1914-15, to 15, the French troops tested the limitations of trench warfare with a series of major offensives that started in 1914 and stretched deep into the following year. Fighting around the regions of Artois and Champagne was highly attritional, as tactically significant positions were taken but invariably then lost again. It became clear that the key to a successful assault lay in sufficient artillery support, but neither the French nor the British had as yet enough guns of the right calibre to break down the German defences. For the British, the shortage of artillery led in May 1915 to a political incident known as the Shell Crisis, which so damaged the reputation of the Liberal Prime Minister Herbert Asquith that he was forced to bring in senior Conservatives to form a coalition government dedicated to prosecuting the war more effectively. As a result of the shortage of artillery, the Allied armies were increasingly forced to rely on long-range preliminary bombardments by the field artillery to try and wear down the German trenches before the infantry were sent over the top. The Germans mainly stood on the defensive through 1915, except for one major attack in April at Ypres. Here they tried out a new weapon, chlorine poison gas, and initially this was highly effective. The Allied troops against whom it was deployed were taken completely by surprise and temporarily abandoned a stretch of the front line. The chlorine invaded the bodies of its victims, burning and choking them and destroying their lungs. But the Allies rapidly improvised antidotes and began to use poison gas themselves and in their propaganda attacked the Germans for initiating the use of gas. After all, its use had been expressly forbidden by the Hague Convention of 1907. Throughout 1915, in a succession of attacks of increasing intensity, the French and British armies learned the techniques of the new kind of war at very heavy cost. Infantry attacks had to be carefully coordinated with artillery barrages, and if an attack was initially successful, it could seldom penetrate beyond the first line of the German trench system, where it remained vulnerable to bombardment and counter-attack from the flanks. Further advance was then slowed down by the need for artillery to re-register their targets. Targeting was helped by advances in aerial photographic reconnaissance, whose images allowed a map to be produced detailing the German trenches. 
Aircraft began to carry wireless transmitters, which allowed messages to be sent directly to the gun batteries using special lettered and numbered squared maps, with a simple clock code to indicate the relative position of the shells as they fell around their target. By September, the desperate state of the Russian armies demanded a major effort in the West. The French and British therefore launched a joint attack that Joffre hoped would finally make a breakthrough. The British sector centred on the mining region of Luz, where they managed to breach the German front line to a width of five miles and a depth of two. However, the Germans had constructed an entire second defensive position behind the first, and the British were unable to bring up reserves quick enough to exploit the breach. The operation dragged on for another month, by the end of which both sides had lost some 200,000 men. Britain was becoming an increasingly important partner for the French, as the size of their forces swelled from its original six to 56 divisions, although many of the new soldiers were volunteers with almost no training. Sir John French, much criticised for the failure at Luz, was removed and replaced by the dour Sir Douglas Haig. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The centre stage of the year 1915 was probably the Eastern Front. The chief of the German general staff, Erich von Falkenhayn, realised that his country's most dangerous enemies lay in the West. And as France and Britain were defeated, the Allies could prolong the war indefinitely, not so much through their own military strength as through maritime superiority that enabled them to draw on the economic resources of the New World and deny them to Germany. Russia no longer presented any immediate threat, and the sheer size of the Eastern Theatre made it difficult to obtain a decisive victory on that front. 
Falkenhayn would have preferred to have concentrated everything on achieving a decisive victory in the West. But he had to deal with Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the great German heroes of the Battle of Tannenberg, who insisted on an active Eastern campaign. Moreover, the Austrians were on the verge of collapse, having lost already a million and a quarter men. Those losses included most of the professional cadre who had held the multinational army together, and the army began suffering mass desertions, especially from the Slav units. On the 7th of February, 1915, Ludendorff launched the Second Battle of the Missouri Lakes with an attack on the Russian 10th Army, which was occupying defensive lines in East Prussia. The Russians were suffering from low morale and a shortage of rifles and ammunition and were taken by surprise. The German forces massed on both flanks then drove forward seeking to choke off escape routes. They were partially successful, but the bulk of the Russian army was able to retreat and to evade capture. In March, the Germans withdrew back to their own borders under renewed pressure from the Russians. Hindenburg and Ludendorff claimed a great victory, declaring they had liberated the last piece of occupied German mainland territory. Falkenhayn, though, was less impressed, considering a meaningless success which had cost the lives of far too many troops. Meanwhile, the Austrians attempted to push deep back into Galicia and to relieve the besieged fortress of Chemischel. But wintry weather conditions made military operations almost impossible. The garrison launched occasional attempts to break out, but they were fended off. At last, with food running out and with no hope of relief, the garrison finally surrendered on the 22nd of March. With the fall of the fortress of Chemischal, the Russians were able to launch a major offensive on the south-west front with the intention of capturing the Carpathian passes and defeating the Austrians. With the imminent collapse of Austro-Hungary, Falkenhayn had little choice but to provide reinforcements. He created a brand new 11th Army under the command of General August von Mackensen, which combined with the Austrians now enjoyed numerical superiority over the Russians. They attacked the Russian 3rd Army on the 1st of May and quickly smashed through the enemy lines. They recaptured the fortress of Chemischel on the 4th of June and the city of Lemberg on the 22nd of June and so swept away all of the gains made by Russia in 1914. By mid-June the situation was desperate for the Russians as their whole line had destabilised. Hindenburg and Ludendorff proposed a grand strategy of encirclement which would trap the entire Russian army. Falkenhayn was more cautious and overruled them. He was determined not to repeat Napoleon's mistake and venture too far into the Russian interior. What he did authorise was a series of offensives into Russian Poland with the intent of capturing Warsaw. The Russians were forced further back and they conceded Warsaw to the Germans on the 5th of August. By the end of August, the Russians had lost all of Poland, but as they retreated, they burnt and destroyed everything of possible value to the enemy.
the German campaign in Poland was so successful that Ludendorff was allowed by Falkenhayn to push further, and so carry out a sweeping advance in the north to take Vilnius in Lithuania. For all their victories, the Germans and Austro-Hungarians were still suffering very large casualties and were unable to replenish their troops as fast as the Russians could. The Germans gained no real strategic advantage. Indeed, for the Russians, the new line of defence had advantages over the Polish salient. It ran from close to Riga in the north all the way down to the Dniestra River and the border with Romania. As well as being straighter and shorter, the expanses of marshland helped buttress the line, making it less vulnerable to sudden breakthroughs. The Eastern Campaign was fought with particular brutality. The Russian devastation of the countryside as they withdrew created somewhere between 3 and 10 million refugees. The Germans likewise had scant regard for civilian welfare and planned to annex the conquered territory and have it settled and dominated by Germans. The annexed region became known as Oberost after the military organisation that ruled it. Plans for population transfer and German domination were especially intense in the northern section of Oberost in Lithuania and Courland, writes Alexander Watson in his book Ring of Steel. Here they were presented in humanitarian terms after the Russians' brutal deportation of thousands of Russian subject ethnic Germans from the region over the winter of 1914 to 1915. Kurland, today in western Latvia, was judged to be the most easily assimilated because its landowning barons and small urban bourgeois were ethnic Germans. The other 90% of inhabitants were mostly illiterate peasants of let ethnicity. With the right education and influx of settlers, it was thought possible to Germanize them within a couple of generations. A similar plan was considered for the more densely populated Lithuania, where if the Polish aristocracy were deported, the locals might be won over to German control. In order to try and complete victory in the Eastern Front, German diplomats worked to persuade the Bulgarian government to join them in alliance. Bulgaria had a strong interest in siding with the Central Powers, since they could offer in return the recovery of Macedonian territory lost to Serbia at the end of the Second Balkan War. France, Britain and in particular Russia were loath to compel the Serbian allies to part with territory in any deal. Also crucially, the victories of the Central Powers against Russia in 1915 were key in the decision of the Bulgarian government to enter the war. The plan was to knock Serbia out of the war and then to open up a land route via Serbia and Bulgaria to Turkey. An army was sent under General Mackensen to attack Serbia from the west, while the Bulgarians attacked from the east. The bombardment of Belgrade began on the 6th of October 1915, and within just three days the Serbian capital was taken. Five days later, the Bulgarian army crossed into Macedonia, while Austrian troops entered from Dalmatia. 
The Serbs fought bravely, but were overwhelmed and fled southwards to the mountain passes into Montenegro and Albania. The retreat took the remnants of the army, together with King Peter, hundreds of thousands of civilian refugees, as well as war prisoners, across some of the roughest terrains in Europe in the middle of winter. Suffering greatly from disease and from cold, lacking food or transport, and harassed by Albanian guerrillas, they headed for safety to the Adriatic coast. Out of the 400,000 people who set out on the journey, only 120,000 soldiers and 60,000 civilians reached their destination. They were evacuated by Allied ships to the island of Corfu, where a Serbian government in exile, headed by Prince Regent Alexander and Nikola Pasic, was established. The Allied troops in Salonika, who were supposed to defend Serbia, had been given cautious orders from London, requiring them to stay close to Salonika, pending the final decision of the Greek government as to whether to abandon neutrality. The French commander, Maurice Sorail, was determined to push inland, but the most he could hope to achieve was to hold a line of retreat for the Serbs. When the British finally moved forward, it was too late to save Serbia. The British and French fell back and formed a line just within the Greek border to try and hold back the Bulgarians. The British wanted to evacuate, but the French would not consider it. The Macedonian front, running from the Albanian Adriatic coast to the river Struma, thereafter remained quite stable, despite local actions, until 1918. Former Prime Minister Venizelos would return to Greece in October 1916. Former government in Salonika, and after Constantine's abdication in June 1917, resumed the premiership with popular support. 1915 had been a disappointing year for the Entente Allies. Although the Italians had joined the war on their side, they had not achieved much against the Austrians. In the east, the Russians had suffered a string of defeats and had lost a lot of territory. In the Balkans, Bulgaria had sided with the Central Powers and Serbia had been defeated. As for the Western Front, the Germans had held their ground despite having to withdraw troops to fight in the east. Nonetheless, the path to victory for the Germans still looked distant. Neither side had managed to achieve a decisive breakthrough, and the conclusion of war seemed as far away as ever. My name is Card Rydert, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page, or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next week, we're going to move on to the year 1916 and talk about, among other things, the battles of Verdun and the Somme. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye. Ever 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 